When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In this week's programme, we ask is New Zealand's test cricket credibility on the line. New Zealand motor racing driver Greg Murphy takes a swipe at his critics. We hear from former All Blacks halfback Albie Mathewson on his move to Perth. And New Zealand targets 18 medals at the Paralympics in London. The international credibility of New Zealand cricket is under threat with the Black Caps struggling through a tour of India. They're in the midst of the second test against India and Bangalore, trying to recover from an innings defeat in the series opener in Hyderabad. That result came on the back of a Test Series loss in the Caribbean, where they were outplayed by the West Indies, who at 7th are ranked only one place higher than New Zealand. In their past seven Tests, the Black Caps have won just one match, and that was against Zimbabwe, who don't even have an official world ranking. The former New Zealand cricket coach Glenn Turner puts the side's problems down to a straightforward lack of skill. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there was an improvement. Um, the problem is the improvement has to be so great to really be competitive. Um, and so I don't see that changing to that extent uh, overnight because, you know, there's no substitute for skill. And, you know, you can have all the confidence you like and talk things up. But um, when you get out there in the middle, the reality hits and it's one against one. And if you don't have those skills to combat the various types of bowling that you're facing, then you're going to be shown up. And and uh, that's what we've been, and that's what we've been often enough in the past. Uh, so I believe the, the weather is supposed to be, um, could be a factor, which could reduce the amount of time. And, of course, you know, sides don't always play to their full potential, so you'd hope that for us to have a, a better chance, India play below their capabilities, and we improve a bit, and, you know, you, you never know, a surprise could occur. A simple lack of skill is, is the problem? Yes, it is. And I just don't think we're hard enough on ourselves in facing up to shortcoming. Often um, uh, debriefs that are, that are, that are held or, or um, uh, reviews, to me, are not robust enough. And it's more about promoting what you've done than really saying, well, where have we got to improve and how are we going to go about doing it? And I think that that whole uh, culture, if you like, for the want of a better word, um, needs to be stronger in that in that way. To improve the skill level, how do you think that could be done or should be done? Well, there's been talk for quite a few years now about um, going to India um, away from game situation. And, and uh, I know other teams, uh, players and other teams have done that, where they've gone to Chennai or somewhere in India and, and spent two weeks a month um, upskilling against spin bowling. And it would be a good thing to take one or two of your own spinners over there because that would help them develop as well. Uh, but to, to do it in a game situation is a, long, a much longer process because if, if you haven't... 
developed enough skills before you go out into the middle against this type of bowling, then your chances of sticking around long enough to learn are not high. So I think that that's the problem that arises there now is that, is that with the international programs as they're set, the guys, when they get a break, they tend to be picking up contracts, 2020 contracts and big bashes or IPLs or there's a new one coming up, I think, in Sri Lanka and so on. And in other words, they don't use that downtime to upskill. And uh, so until those sorts of things happen, I, I think we can anticipate more of the same. So does that put our test credibility at stake? Um, well, you know, I've, I mean, for some time also, I think it's fair to say that we have the big four nations um, who tend to use the other nations for practice. Uh, and uh, I know that's putting it very coldly, but the reality is that, and money plays a major part in this, the, you, you've got India obviously number one in terms of uh, the money and the, the strength that that gives. And then you've got England behind them and Australia next and then South Africa. Um, and even though the likes of uh, Sri Lanka uh, are quite strong um, and Pakistan from time to time can be quite strong too, uh, the reality is they haven't got the money behind them and they're seen as the next grouping, if you like. And New Zealand's in that. But what we've got to do, we can't do anything about the money side of it, but what we can do is get to the top of that group, if you like, so that we're seen as desirable to play against uh, by these other four nations, even if they are using us for practice. Um, so that, that, that would, for me, that would be the, the aim. The danger would appear to be, though, that we're even dropping off, off that group. Yes, yeah, well, that's um, always a concern, and, uh, yeah, well, it's... That, that's right, but I mean, I, I could come up with lots of thoughts about what I think needs to change, um, and uh, I don't wish to go through it all in this interview, but it's as though there isn't uh, a strong acceptance that that needs to be done and that confidence will conquer all, and uh, whilst we have that overall belief, I don't think we're going to progress with what we've got uh, as well as we can or could. Kane Williamson made the comment that they've watched the Indian batsmen closely about how they they play spin, and he commented that they often play against the spin. Whereas that, since well, you're so high in New Zealand, you're taught to play play with the spin. Any any thought on on that sort of approach? I, I was left um, with so many questions when I read that, um, which which either the interviewers uh, didn't extract from him or he didn't have enough time to explain himself as fully as he, as he needed to. Because, um, I mean, on the face of it, that doesn't make much sense. And I'm sure that uh, he can come up with a few, a bit more than that to try and make some sense out of it. Uh, because, uh, you know, I don't know anyone who's been successful playing against the spin per se. I mean, the example there would be if an off-spinner is bowling to a right-hander, if you try and hit him through the covers, you're leaving an automatic gate between bat and pad to get your poles knocked over. So, you know, I mean, uh, he knows more than that. Are we at the point of almost being a laughing stock on the international scene? Yeah, I don't like using words like laughing stock, but I would say that sitting in one's lounge, watching it on television, it was quite embarrassing. Um, because you could see that the way that some of the batsmen were going about it, 
is that it was uh, unlikely that they were unlikely to remain out there for very long. And and when you see obvious mistakes being made, then you've got to ask yourself, well, is this um, up to international standard? And I suppose that the reaction to just the general public reaction, though, is, well, this is just more of the same, and therefore that obviously does cricket no good. Well, that's right. And I don't think that it should be protected because... In the short term, I know that, you know, society, there's a, an in-phrase now about uh, living in the, in the present or the, uh, the bubble, I think they call it, of the present. And, and that's basically, you know, with people not knowing the history of things or, or looking deeper into them. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's certainly where we're at. I was talking to former Black Caps coach Glenn Turner. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. The veteran New Zealand driver Greg Murphy's got back behind the wheel of his V8 supercar for the first time in three months and immediately headed for his critics. Before time, Bathurst 1000 champion took part in a ride day at Sydney Motor Sport Park earlier this week. The first time he's driven his Kelly Racing Holden Commodore since back surgery in May. Murphy's been off the pace in his Commodore, maintaining it's the car and not his driving abilities. He says that's been proved with former Formula One driver Jacques Villeneuve, who replaced him also struggling. He hopes to return for the endurance races in this year's V8 Supercar Series, starting with Sandown in just under a fortnight. The doc was good enough to let me get behind the wheel in a non-competition role uh, just to do a ride day for our sponsors, so pretty important sort of day, so I was keen to do that and and it's all gone really well. How long did you have on the out there? Oh, listen, I don't know, three or four stints of at least an hour each kind of thing in the car. So, you know, a few laps, um, spent a few bit of time in the car today, which, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good to do. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's like we got, got through it really good. Back feels fantastic. No issues whatsoever. But I, unfortunately, you know, I'm still not able to or not allowed to race this weekend at Tavo, which um, is disappointing being in a competition competition role. So um, I've got to wait until uh, hopefully we stand down in a, in a couple of weeks um, where I'll be able to get, uh, get behind the wheel and, and uh, in aggression. That's the goal, is it? Sand down is sort of what the, the medical people have said that should be good for you. Well, um, I, you know, I'm the one that's sort of probably... Um, telling them <laughs> I'll have a, have a check up in a couple of weeks time before stand down and actually next week and um, get a scan done and, and hopefully uh, the surgeon will you know, clear me to, to go ahead. What has the time off told you about I suppose your love of the of motorsport and, and how much you want to keep racing? Oh, it's told me a lot but it's also I think one of the key factors that it's told me is that um, you know, in our sport you know, there's plenty of people that want to bash you and, and um, have a crack and throw rocks and all that kind of stuff because you're not performing all that kind of stuff and and I think uh, it's uh, been quite uh, conclusively proven that um, you know this year having a couple of other drivers drive this car it's proven that um, certainly it's not uh, not the driver that's the problem you know so uh, and uh, you know which I knew all the way along but um, you know that's an easy excuse for for people to, to um, blame you as is why the, 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 you know, the performance isn't there but the Unfortunately, a Pepsi car has been pretty poor in performance since I haven't been driving it, worse than, you know, when I am. So, you know, it gives me a lot of confidence to know that, um, you know, I have uh, not been the reason why we've been struggling so much the last little while. So that's one thing. And, and um, 
hopefully that'll uh, maybe change a few people's minds in the in the pit lane who who uh, take it upon themselves to, to make judgment when they should know better. So, you know, with a bit of luck, that uh, might change a few people's opinions. You were getting it from a few quarters saying you were past it, were you? Oh, I mean, it's been happening the last few years, all these so-called experts out there who, who think that it's, uh, all the cars are the same and everyone's equal. And, um, you know, they've got all these these hot shots up the front there winning all these races. Well, the hot shots up the front there winning all the races would be uh, down the back where we are if they were in the cars that we're driving. So, you know, it's... Um, that's, that's the way it works, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a sport that revolves around, um, uh, you know, money mostly and, and um, the resources that you've got and, and you need all those things working for you very well to, to be up the front there. It's just as simple as that. If you're not comfortable or not confident, you know, it's, it's a lot of hard work and that's, that's where we've been at for the last little while is just trying to find our way through and, and improve as best we can and, and I think next year we might show up a, a few of these so-called uh, hot shots that uh, I think they're superstars but they're in, they're in good good teams with good budgets and, and very good management and, and good operations, you know. So next year with the Car of the Future, that hopefully might uh, level level the playing field a little bit and, and then that um, few other teams and drivers that uh, have still got the goods and can still produce the results might have a better chance of doing that when the, when the playing field's a bit more level. Did you think at any stage you weren't going to be able to, to compete again? Uh, no, not, no, I didn't, actually. I mean, I knew what the problem was. I was told it would be fixed. It was just a time thing, so... You know, I'm, I'm keen to get back into it, keen to try and find a way to get competitive again. If that happens this year or not, I'm not sure. But, you know, I want to have the chance next year to, to have a crack and and, um, and do the job I know I can do, you know, when you're in the right environment. Did you struggle not being able to do anything? Oh, it's, it's, not, no, it's not good sitting around. I'm not, a, I'm not a very good or a very avid sort of um, couch potato when it comes to, you know, watching stuff, especially stuff that you should be doing. And um, so, no, I, you know, I just didn't really take as much notice obviously, is, um, is what you do when you're actually there doing it. How long do you think you can keep going? Oh, I don't know. Who knows? You know, it's, it's something, find something, you know, be able to do what you do and be happy doing it and, and enjoy it and, and be able to work hard and, and achieve is, is what it's all about, you know. So, you know, that's, that's where I want to be. Um, and this, week, this year has just been a real tough for all the, all the Kelly team, a lot of work and effort going in, but um, it's just been really, really hard on everybody, so... You know, and there's, there's so much going on, you know, with next year and everything, um, this new car or the future thing, it's just a massive, massive undertaking. And and uh, unfortunately, you know, we just uh, haven't been able to get on top of things this year as an operation, and, and we've all suffered because of it. So if you're 60 and you're still competing fine and feeling well, fine... I think I'll be sick of it by then. Yeah. <laughs> There'll be other things to do. I still do still a lot of stuff, but I'd, I'd certainly like to do a couple more years to be competitive and... And be able to, you know, choose when I when I, you know, stop racing rather than have other people determine that. I was talking with motor racing driver Greg Murphy. The former All Blacks halfback Albie Matthewson's leaving the Blues, having signed with the Perth-based Western Force for next year's Super Rugby season. Matthewson, who's 26, has played four tests for the All Blacks. Those were in 2010, and he spent the past three seasons with the Auckland-based franchise after playing for the Hurricanes between 2007 and 2009. With Perry Wepu having decided to stay on at the Blues for 2013, Matthewson says the move is all about getting more game time. It's been going on for a couple of months now. Uh, the force were interested and then the Waratahs must have heard that I was sort of looking around and then Fo- Mick Foley rang me when he was at the Waratahs and he was really keen to get me there. Then obviously he he left there and, and went to the force, so he got back in touch 
and um, things sort of moved on pretty quickly once once he signed with the force. So was it a, a bit of a surprise that they came knocking or had you sort of put the word out there that you might be interested in a move? My management team were looking around or like sort of heard as well because just because I hadn't heard anything from the Blues so they sort of just had a look around at the maybe a potential Australian side and, and uh, those sides came up. So the Blues hadn't indicated that they were going to renew your contract? Nah, I hadn't heard from them, so I was stunned to look. So, so the whole the the issue with sort of John Kerwin coming along that that hadn't prompted you to to look elsewhere. No, I was just just wanting the game time, and uh, there was a there was just a good opportunity for, to get some quite a lot of game time, and at the force hopefully. So it just suited me. Have you asked around about a few other players as to how they got on to the, the force? I mean, because like, they've had guys like Tim Fairbrother have headed over there. Did you ever chat with various people to, to get a, a lie of the land? Yeah, I spoke to um, Winston Stanley, who's over there. He was at the Blues uh, with us last year, or the, a couple of years ago. And Tim Fairbrother, I played at the Hurricanes with him. And uh, David Smith, he was over there. So <laughs> had, a, had a chat to him about it as well. Be uh, a wee bit of a different lifestyle, I imagine. Yeah, um, obviously... Uh, I've been there a couple of times. It's a really nice city. The players are, are really, you know, they're really tight knit culture because a lot of them aren't actually from Perth, so they don't have family there, and everyone's sort of hangs out together. Which, you know, they've got a really good culture, and It'd be quite interesting going, I suppose, going into a place where rugby's not the the, the number one sport, too. Yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah, that's right. Um, that doesn't bother me too much. And just get over there and just go about your business and and get on with things without too much. Media scrutiny, I suppose. What's this sort of mean for your black future? Does this mean you're giving up on adding to your four test caps? I wouldn't say giving up because I still, um, I'm, my body's healthy. I've, I've never, I've never missed a game through injury since I've started playing. Like the main thing I want is, is the game time. If you're not getting game time, you're not going to make the All Blacks anyway. But I suppose at the moment I have to put that on hold. But I guess it's just a good chance to go over there and, and hopefully get some good game, game time and prove that I can still foot it with the best, which which I feel that I can. Did you get any other offers from sort of the UK or France? Was that ever a, a, a possibility? Yeah, obviously with France, um, I'd have to go... Well, their season's already sorted, so um, if I wanted to play there, not the season coming, but the following season, I'd have to start looking in September now, so I would have had to been looking last September, which I wasn't really that keen on, so... Plus, I wanted to stay in, in the super competition because it is, well, I feel like it's the best competition in the world, and I wanted to uh, stay with the style of rugby that um, that suits me and be able to prove prove that I can still play at this level with in the best competition. So when do you have to uh, head to Perth? By the 1st of December, so probably shoot over uh, mid-November or something like that. That's former All Blacks halfback Albie Mathewson, who's heading to the Perth-based Western Force for next year's Super Rugby competition. The Paralympics are underway with swimmer Sophie Pascoe getting New Zealand on the medal table with a gold in the individual medley. A triple gold medalist at the last Games in Beijing, Pascoe's first medal in London is the first of 18 targeted by Paralympics New Zealand. George Very spoke to high-performance manager Mal Hum about where the rest of the medals might come from. The bulk of the medals are likely to come from, from our swim team. Um, uh, we've, got a, we've got a group of eight swimmers that are all in the top five in the world and, and swimming really well. So there is the expectation that the bulk will come from there, well backed up by our bike team, who are, who are 
all in form, um, have competed and performed well at the last World Championships. I guess that's an interesting thing because if we looked at the New Zealand bike system from an abled body setup, it did extremely well and I guess that's a natural follow on a little bit from um, uh, for the Paralympics to follow in that system but the pool scenario, it's been relatively well documented that that is not as uh, healthy as we would have liked from an able body point of view but it's extremely well, it's excelling as far as uh, Paralympics are concerned. What are you doing differently or is it just a case of having some exceptional athletes that are uh, excelling within your, pl- your programme? Yeah, I don't think it's any fluke that we're we're in the position we are now. I think that we've we've got a talent identification program, a development program that's seeing young athletes from the age of five, six, seven coming through, and we're targeting them four to eight years down the track. I also think it's it's quite ironic. Like once again, I guess no fluke that we had Sophie Pascoe win her four medals in Beijing. She was the only female athlete. Now we've got five female athletes. So I think it's it comes back to that inspiration as well. So we'll talk about that a little bit because Sophie's gone from a 15-year-old girl to a 19-year-old woman athlete. She has both of those things now. She's changed shape. She's done all those sorts of things, but she doesn't fly under the radar so much this time here in London either. No, she's uh, the one they're all trying to catch now. Um, but she has developed, as you say, and, and, and she pro- she's continually progressed, as any elite athlete would. She continues to break world records, um, and we're confident she'll do the, the business here. Well, one of those five women athletes that you've got here is Nikita. She's a 13-year-old girl, and I guess most people would look at that being a risky scenario, taking someone like that to, to such a big event like this, being so far away from home, effectively on the opposite side of the world, away from her parents. But I, I guess the, the way that Sophie performed in Beijing would would help with a little bit of confidence to know that Nikita can, can I guess, perform in a similar system and you're, you're expecting her to do well as well. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, look, this isn't Nikita's first international event. We took Nikita away as a 12-year-old last year to the Pampax in Canada. Uh, she performed or she exceed, exceeded the performances we expected there. We then brought her to Sheffield earlier this year. She did the same and look, she's met the qualification criteria. She's She, she continues to improve and I think we've, um, we've learnt from the Sophie Pesco scenario back in Beijing that we can we can make this work. Our selection criteria was was pretty black and white to be honest. It was be a middle contender here in London or put it up a top six and be a, a, a middle contender for Rio. So we've got no tourists here. We're here to, to do business and um, and win medals. As far as the the bike's concerned, then let's move on a little bit. The um, it's been a successful thing from an able body setup, but you've got some some real contenders here, and I guess. Uh, talking about the tandem, that's probably a good place to start. It's a, it's a pretty good setup there with Philly. Yeah, look, Philly and uh, Philip Gray and Laura Thompson, they've, um, they, they've been on the bike three years together and they've just, once again, they've just continued to improve to the stage where they're now, they're now real-world contenders. They, they won the bronze medal in, in LA earlier this year and they've continued to perform since then. Um, hey, they've got strong competition, but I think they'll be uh, real contenders in the four events they're competing in. Shooting, I guess let's finish with that because uh, Michael Johnson's been picked as the flag bearer uh, and he's, for, for obvious reasons, he's been there and he's done it before. Can he go out there and, and do it again? Yeah, I believe Mike can. Um, shooting uh, for anybody that's watched shooting, it's it, it's it's a millimetre game, and anything can happen on the day. Um, but Mike, as you say, does have that experience. He's he's medalled at the last two Paralympic games, and I think that's going to work for him here in London. So uh, that being said, as I say, we get back to eighteen medals. It's a, it's a pretty good haul as far as a team that 
effectively was 26 or 24 made up with two extra pilots. Now one of the, or two of those have gone. So the team's down to 24. If they walk away with 18 medals... Yeah, once again, oh, I guess it's no fluke. Uh, back in 2008, we, we ran a strong talent ID program that was supported by High Performance Sport New Zealand, and um, we targeted individual athletes that had the, the potential to win multiple medals. Um, and and that's, this is where we are now. Yeah, and I guess that will, for the majority of these athletes that are relatively young, there's one or two with exception that are uh, certainly mature athletes, but the bulk of the side, squad could be around for quite some time. Yeah, most definitely, and that's a real exciting part of it, that we do have um, a lot of our young athletes will probably be demonstrating their best in Rio. Their medal hopes here, but they'll be demonstrating their best in Rio. And look, we've got a lot of athletes coming in behind them as well. That's Paralympics New Zealand's high-performance manager, Mel Hum, talking to George Very. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.